Alan thought he heard something from the stacks, but wasn't sure what. Wafinda heard a thump, like a fist hitting a chest, quickly followed by a gasp. But no one heard any angry imprecations, no pleas, no screams of mortal terror, no struggle to the death. A physician familiar with the process of death found the victim's silence hard to explain, even after a wound that proved so quickly fatal. It's just unbelievable that there was no scream, he said. It was as if the murderer and his victim both observed the ancient rule that no noise is to be made in a library, but not for long. Moments later came a crash and the sounds of books hitting the floor. A stranger emerged from the corps, coming at Erdely and Wafinda like a speeding train. He looked to be about twenty-five years old, about six feet tall and big, but not husky. He had one of those professional faces one tends to associate with foreign correspondents on television. He was better dressed than the typical student, wearing a sport jacket over khaki work pants. Alan, who of course had never seen the young man before, thought he was wearing a white shirt and tie. Neither Erdely or Wafinda recognized him either. When the running man saw the two students, he slowed but did not stop. "'Somebody had better help that girl!' he said, gesturing back toward the noise. But he was not going to help her. The stranger continued moving toward the stairs, but then saw Alan, who was still standing well apart from Wafinda and Erdely. The running man whirled and headed back in the opposite direction but on a route that took him around, not through the core. Wafinda's native language was Portuguese, and he knew some French too, but his facility with English was so-so, acquired after arriving in the United States in 1965. He thought he heard the stranger say, We've got to help the girl, and followed him. Wafinda followed the running man at a trot back around the core, back to where Merrily Erdely was deciding what to do, then back into the core where he lost him. After one more circuit looking for the stranger, Wafinda left and presumably walked home in the cold darkness to his downtown apartment at 232 West College Avenue. Allen also left and did not realize for some months that he had been a witness to the aftermath of a murder. Meanwhile, Erdely, scared and alone, walked hesitantly into the core, looking for the source of the noise. Passing the aisle between rows 50 and 51, no more than 20 feet from where she had been standing, she was shocked to see a slender, beautiful young woman in a red sleeveless dress and white turtleneck sweater lying on the floor, half on her side, her reddish-brown hair askew. It was Betsy Ardsma, her classmate from English 501, with whom she had spoken so recently. One leg was propped up on a bookshelf as if she had been trying to climb to safety before falling to the floor. Books lay around and on top of her, and one of the lower shelves hung crazily downward. Her eyes were closed. She was still and there was a puddle on the floor, later identified as urine. But there was no blood, none that Erdely could see anyway. Erdely told Keebler and his investigators in the coming days that she assumed Betsy had fainted. Kneeling down, she began smoothing Betsy's hair, adjusting her red dress and putting some of the books back on an unbroken shelf. Her actions would infuriate the state police and, however briefly, gave her the unwelcome status of someone the police thought might know more than she was telling them. 
Erdely was in shock, rapidly falling to pieces, a breakdown that would mystify investigators. Why did she become hysterical if she thought Betsy had only fainted?